It's kind of a truncated treatment. It's it's, it's like we're we're going to give you some medic. Maybe we're going to give you some medication. We're going to make we're going to tell you to go to this treatment. And then you're on your own. Right. So we only going to detox you, and we expect you that you're going to stay abstinent. There is no information about the evidence base. Medications after detoxification, opiate blocker could be a oh, way. Okay. To maintain so there's no, there's not even med- medication involved in most of these. No, many inpatient detoxifications do not put people on medication. It's they changing. just detox them. Yes, detox and them they... and sell them to twelve-step groups. Okay, it's changing but slowly. Welcome back to Outside Counsel. Today, I'm sitting down with Chris McGree, an award-winning journalist and book author, for the Guardian. He has been a globe-trotting war correspondent, and he now turns his attention to the war at home, the opioid epidemic, where he has written the book, American Overdose, The Opioid Tragedy in Three Acts. In his book, Chris paints a devastating portrait of corporate greed, congressional neglect, and craven promotion that led to the deadliest drug-related public health crisis in American history. In this episode, Chris speaks candidly about what he has learned on the front lines of the opioid epidemic. I'm a reporter for The Guardian, a 200-year-old daily newspaper in Britain, which has really gone global since the internet age. I've worked for the paper for 30 years now um, as a foreign correspondent uh, initially in South Africa during the last years of apartheid, um, and then in the Middle East, based in Jerusalem. And then uh, at the beginning of the Obama administration, they sent me to be the Washington correspondent. um, And I did that for three or four years. And since then, I've kind of lived across the states, writing about different parts of it on the West Coast, in the Midwest for a while during the last couple of years of the Trump administration. You're an investigative reporter who's done work all over the globe. I wouldn't really call myself investigative in the sense that, I, you know, I, I, being a foreign correspondent, you, you write a lot of things. Sometimes I write about conflict, um, certainly in Africa and the Middle East, but also a lot of politics. It's really, I, I guess, underpinning a lot of what my reporting has been about has been to look at marginalized communities, look at look at people who aren't necessarily uh, making the front page of the newspaper um, in a lot of cases. And, and obviously, um, that's something that the United States uh, has in common with um, large parts of Africa and the Middle East. Chris, I've had the pleasure of reading your terrific book, uh, American Overdose, The Opioid Tragedy in Three Acts. What prompted you to write the book? When I first came to the United States, uh, one of the things that The Guardian asked me to do was to write about uh, marginalized parts of the country, poorer areas uh, that didn't always make the foreign press. This is long before it became slightly fashionable once uh, Donald Trump was elected. One of the things I did was to look at the American census, and I I did a series traveling between some of the, the lowest income towns in this country. Um, and one of them is uh, in eastern Kentucky, a place called Beattyville. And it was there that I first came across the opioid epidemic firsthand. It's a very Republican town. So we're talking about 11, 12 years ago now. And I essentially started to ask myself questions about, about this epidemic. And I think the, 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 the question that kind of leapt out to me was, why is this an epidemic we're only seeing in the United States? Why is it a uniquely American 
phenomenon. You, you weren't seeing this in Europe, and to some degree, you're now seeing uh, uh, the impact of opioid addiction in, in Canada, but it wasn't on the same scale, and it didn't have the same trajectory. And I think that's really what put me on that path. I became very interested in, in why this was essentially a uniquely American epidemic. In fact, in your book, you state the question presented very plainly, which was, how was the greatest drug epidemic in American history allowed to grow virtually unchecked for two decades with no end in sight? Ultimately, it's because medicine in this country is an industry. It is not what it is in most other countries, which is a service. And I think most of the developed world with public health services, the focus is on on the whole on what's good for the patient. That's not always the case. Sometimes other priorities take over, like government spending and uh, the restrictions on drugs because governments can't afford them for public health services. But on the whole, it's about what's good for the patient, I think. That's the outcome they're looking at. I think to a large extent in the United States, medicine is practiced as to what's good for the bottom line. It's less about what, what is good for the patient. The outcome for the patient is not as important as, as profit. And I think that underpins everything that has happened with the opioid epidemic, because whilst you see the justification for the prescribing of opioids in the way that they were dressed up as as being good for the patient. In fact, it was ultimately driven by making a profit. To that end, uh, you in your book, you cite the statistic that although the United Kingdom and France have plenty of pain patients too, and presumably on a per capita basis, Americans don't suffer more pain than do the British or the French, we in America uh, prescribe five times more opioids than they do. You know, there are clearly problems with both the American and the British health systems. You can, you can, you know, list them. Um, but on the whole, I'd say that the idea of treating pain in both of those countries is to look at the causes of the pain and then provide the kind of treatment that's appropriate for that. Now, you know, pain can come from lots of things. It can come from people's lack of physical fitness. It can come from diabetes, which is down to sometimes down to diet and exercise. Um, pain can come from psychological causes, um, abuse, mental and physical abuse. There, there are lots of causes for it. There are lots of ways of dealing with it. Physiotherapy, um, for instance. Now, if we're talking about chronic pain here, extended pain here, we're not talking about uh, the kind of pain that you have immediately after an accident or, or an operation. I think what happened in the United States was a combination of things, but essentially um, a situation was created in which instead of looking at the causes of the pain and dealing with those, the drug industry latched onto making a profit out of dealing with the pain itself. And that the way to deal with that was deemed to be the prescribing of opioids. If you go straight to opioids, which is what happened straight to a pill, then you're not really dealing with the underlying causes. I think the other, other element that fed into that with other profit motive is the insurance companies, which frequently look for the cheapest means of treating pain. And actually, pills were by far the cheapest rather than paying for a physiotherapist or psychological help or any of those complicated measures which which not only cost more but take up more uh, of a doctor's time as you'll know you know frequently health insurance companies give a doctor maybe 10 or 15 minutes to see a patient 
easy to prescribe pills in 10 or 15 minutes, less easy to deal with the deeper consequences uh, or the deeper causes of pain and the consequences of pain and think about whether a person needs psychological help or physiotherapy or whatever these other treatments may be. So you see a combination of these things, all the financial interests uh, concerned to uh, latch onto pills as the answer rather than dealing with the underlying causes. You've hit on a really important point and it's subtle and I want to break it apart a little bit. One of the contributing factors to the opioid epidemic in America that is unique in America, as opposed to other countries, for example, that have socialized medicine, is the managed healthcare system in America. And in that vein, if a doctor can see 30 patients in a day, as opposed to 10, right, that is more profitable for everybody in relation to that doctor, the managed healthcare system, you know, his or her office practice and all of it. But there's only so much time in a day to see 30 patients instead of 10. And if you can quote unquote satisfy the patient by providing them something which will alleviate pain, albeit having nothing to do with the root cause of that pain, there certainly are financial incentives to do that as opposed to, as you say, spending the time even with less patients per day to get to the root cause of the pain and develop a treatment regimen to fix it. Did you find that to be true and unique about America? Yes, and I I heard it from the doctors here. Doctors would tell me, oh, I want to spend more time uh, with the patients, but the hospital won't let me, the insurance company won't let me, whoever it may be. And not only that, the patients won't let them. Frequently, you heard from, I heard from the doctors that um, that they would want to offer the patient an alternative to opioids, or they would try and offer the patient. But the patient was so set on having the pills because they saw this as the answer, the immediate answer to their problem, that the patients themselves would be dissatisfied. And in this age, when you have patient satisfaction surveys in hospitals and clinics, the doctors could not afford to upset the hospitals by having their patients saying they were unhappy with their doctor because that person was telling them, go out, look after yourself better before you before you start taking more pills. And I think that um, that was that was a big part of the pressure. So they, they were feeling it from all sides, including from the patients. Now, is it true that there's pressures in, in public health services? I know in Britain, for instance, right now, partly because of COVID, that, you know, that people are scrambling to get doctor's appointments as well. That's a different kind of pressure, I think. It, what it isn't is a problem, but it, what it's not motivated by is merely making as much money as possible. And those were the marketing messages of many opioid manufacturers exploiting exactly those sentiments for profit, which is pain is exactly what the patient says it is. Don't question it, doctor. Right? Your Hippocratic Oath requires you to treat that suffering Opioids are the best and safest method to do that. If you're not prescribing the pain patient opioids, that you're not doing your job, right? And patients were taught to make outcry about any kind of pain at all and seek pain relief as the fifth vital sign, no differently than we would try to lower blood pressure or fix a fever, that pain itself is a disease and doggone it, you have every right to be treated with controlled substances 
on a persistent basis, and you should expect nothing less. One of the perhaps biggest surprises to me in researching this book and talking to the doctors' concerns, how little training doctors had in the treatment of pain, and certainly to you in the use of opioids to treat pain. And, and perhaps almost shockingly, doctors found that they were in a position when the sales persons would come from the drug manufacturers and explain opioids, they were actually being told by a non-medical person how to use these drugs and what was good for the patient and what wasn't good for the patient and whether they were addictive or they weren't. And the doctors didn't know. They were, they were actually listening to sales talk and applying that as medical procedure. And I asked one doctor how much training you know, a, doc, a man who had been a doctor for quite a few years, he'd had in the treatment of pain using opioids, he told me he'd had two days in total over all of those years. And all, almost none of it was beyond how to prescribe, how to supposedly look out for addiction. But most of it was actually pushing the idea that these were the ideal treatment. These were the default treatment for pain. And it was clear to me that large numbers of doctors actually had little idea about why they were prescribing these pills. One of the overarching themes of the book, but, but also of this whole epidemic, is the degree to which medical policy is set by the drug companies. It's not controlled by the medical profession. It's not controlled by the government. It's actually the drug industry went out and wrote this whole thing and then effectively imposed it. And the medical profession bought into it and the government bought into it and and the FDA bought into it and in the end only the CDC stood up and started to blow the whistle but for a long time regulators bought into it and the they created a big lie and the big lie was an epidemic of untreated pain having created that big lie they then said well we need to treat this it's it's a human right it's immoral not to treat this pain and then what they go out and do is say, we've got this magic pill. These pills can solve the problem. Nobody talked about why there was this supposed epidemic of pain. And nobody talked about the underlying causes of it. It was all about the treatment. And along came these pills. And essentially, a culture built up in which there was enormous pressure on doctors to prescribe. And I, I, I talked to the chief surgeon at a hospital in Detroit, the, the largest hospital in Detroit, who had had his battles about opioids. And he told me that essentially uh, he was, they once tried to haul him up before the hospital's ethics committee because he was extremely doubtful about prescribing at the levels that he was being told to prescribe. Um, but he was essentially accused of denying a patient their human rights for daring to say these may be dangerous. And this is the culture that took, took hold, but it was entirely generated, not by the medical profession itself, not even really by the patients, but by the drug industry. What else, if anything, comes to mind that shocked you, even though you began this research already knowing there was an opioid epidemic? I think the reaction of the drug industry, once it became clear there was an epidemic in the making. Opioids have been on the rise through the 1990s, but we see the introduction of OxyContin by Purdue Pharma in 1997. And that really kickstarts the, what we're seeing now, the, both the addiction, the abuse, the overdoses. That, that kicks the whole thing off. 
it became rapidly, I mean, within two or three years, it was very clear uh, in parts of this country, including Appalachia, West Virginia, places like Maine, um, where a lot of these pills were prescribed, well, they were in part because so many people were um, doing physical labor and there was demand for some kind of pain relief they've been using for years. But OxyContin comes in, it's a very, very powerful drug, but it's sold by Purdue Pharma as safer. They say because it's a very high dose, you only take to take one or two pills a day. And that high dose means it's less addictive because you're not taking pills constantly. That turned out to be actually a lie. A very high dose pill, it makes sense, turned out to be much more addictive because you get a much bigger hit. So it became pretty clear within two or three years that there was a major problem in the works. And at that point, various people started ringing the bell. And one of them was a, a doctor called Jane Ballantyne. Uh, she was head of kind of pain at both Harvard Medical School and at uh, Massachusetts General Hospital. And she had been prescribing pills as she had been told that they should be that that opioids should be the default and they should be increased dosages according to the levels of pain. Um, and she began to see that far from relieving the pain and improving her patients' lives, in fact, they were just taking increasing doses of these drugs, but always remaining in pain. And the quality of life uh, had dropped drastically. They, In some cases, they were taking so many pills that they were debilitating. And she began to suspect that actually what was afflicting them wasn't the pain, but um, addiction. Sure. So she started to raise questions. She's you know, a very, very well-regarded specialist. And she writes an article in the New England Journal of Medicine saying, essentially, we need to put the brakes on here. We're, this rush towards prescribing these drugs is dangerous. We need more research and we don't have it. And at that point, what you see the drug industry do, it could have done one of two things. It could have done what would have been moral and say, yes, there's a problem here. Uh, um, we sell these drugs and we need to do this research. Instead, they essentially embarked on the public relations campaign to change the conversation. They went about firstly trying to discredit Jane Ballantyne and other doctors who were ringing the alarm bells. But they created a narrative in which they blamed the patients who became addicted. Right. They said, over here, we have these people who need these pills, the innocent victims who've got pain. And these addicts who are overdosing and, and dying should not be allowed to take away the, the pills from the good pain patients. The problem with that narrative was, of course, that many of the people who became addicted and became, as the drug industry would term them, abusers, had in fact began on prescription pills. And they'd been drawn in to addiction by these uh, prescriptions. And then sometimes they had indeed gone and bought additional pills on the black market. But the, the industry very much wanted to create a narrative of good and bad patients. It's only about bad people who abuse. It is. And this is the message they pushed to Congress. And this is the message that they, they pushed to the medical profession. And of course, the intent was simply to stop any action that might have curtailed the pursuit towards uh, mass prescribing of these drugs. They they really couldn't afford anything that raised questions or discredited them. So you asked, you know, was there anything else that shocked me? That shocked me. That I mean, that was truly shocking because we're constantly told by the drug industry, by big pharma, how they 
always puts patient safety first. And this was clearly a case in which not only were they not doing that, but they knew they were lying about it too. In your book, you describe what some term the gateway effect, the phenomenon that the multi-year steep increase in opioid prescribing and supply led to increases in heroin use in America and the rise of illicit fentanyl. Are you aware that many opioid drug companies and some advocates for chronic pain patients deny that there is such thing as a gateway effect or any causal relationship between prescription opioids and heroin? And have you confronted that since you've written the book? Much as the drug industry, when it became apparent that there was an epidemic in the making, tried to shift the the blame to the people that became addicted and said, don't look here, look there. They're doing the same with now with the heroin and fentanyl crisis. And they're saying, look, we've got all this fentanyl coming across the border from Mexico. We've got heroin overdoses. Why are you still talking about pills? They're not the problem. And it's true. It's certainly true that more people now die from fentanyl. And I think heroin deaths, when I last looked, were more or less the same as, as prescription opioid pill deaths. But to separate them out is wrong. Once it's apparent that there are large levels of addiction and therefore demand for prescription opioids in America, the Mexican cartels wake up to this possibility. They know and how to make money. They, they know, how they to know make money. where the demand is. Exactly. And so they start to bring in heroin, which had really largely fallen away in favor of both methamphetamine and, you know, for for smuggled drug, which is large amounts of which were manufactured in the United States. And then cocaine, which was being smuggled from, uh, you know, Colombia and other bits of South America, as we know, heroin was no longer a big product out of the cartels from the South. But they wake up to this possibility and they say, well, what's the difference between a pill, one of these pills and heroin? And they were right because the DEA was saying exactly the same thing. They were calling OxyContin heroin and a pill. And so the the cartels say, well, we can offer the same service for cheaper. And that's essentially what they start to do. They start to bring the heroin in to places where there's a lot of demand. You can see it in Ohio. You can see it in. They begin with the cities uh, for a reason that a cop told me in West Virginia. They said, you know, we know everybody around here. If you if you've got drug dealers moving around rural West Virginia, we'd spot them, you know, but not in Ohio cities, uh, not in large parts of Florida. So they start to bring it into those bits of the country where they can they can distribute without being noticed. And but that's when you see heroin start to to move in. And it's a direct consequence of the addiction crisis created by prescribing opioids. And one of the things I found in talking to people who became addicted to opioids is there was a psychological barrier. They said as long as they were on the pills, they didn't feel like they were addicts. But one day they can't get the pills. There's always a day for, and somebody says to them, listen, just take heroin. It's the same thing. To take heroin, to snort it or inject it would mean to themselves, they'd be confessing to themselves that they become addicted and they didn't want to do that. But they would be so desperate, they would cross that barrier. Once they crossed that barrier, they they could use either. And it's quite interesting that for a few years, at least people would flip back and forth between black market heroin and prescription pills, you know, getting what they could when. That's where you see really this river and it's just, it's flowing together. These things are not not separate rivers. They're one big river. 
Well, and of course, exactly right. Hydrocodone, oxycodone, and heroin are all based in the same morphine molecule. Opioid prescribing increases fourfold in the United States between 1997 and 2012. And right about 2006, 7, 8, when we are really in the throes of the opioid epidemic, marijuana growers in Mexico turn their crops over and start growing poppy. Why do you think that is? Well, indeed, exactly. And uh, they were smart. And one of the things they were very smart about was the way that they did that business. You know, previously, I mean, that kind of drug dealing was always associated with violence in the past. This time they came in as businessmen and they were very clever about keeping a low profile. It took quite a long time, I think, for the DEA to wake up to what was really going on because they did avoid the past violence and all of the kind of visual trappings that drew attention to heroin. And it worked its way into this country unseen for a while. You quote in your book a former head of the Food and Drug Administration who called America's opioid epidemic, quote, one of the greatest mistakes of modern medicine. Are you at liberty to tell us which former head of FDA told you that? Yeah, that was Dr. David Kessler. You relate the history of how Arthur Sackler compromised the FDA as early as the 1950s through the Henry Welch affair. And you provide that history as an antecedent to the success his brothers, Raymond and Mortimer, had decades later in persuading FDA to approve OxyContin with drug labeling that was false and misleading. Can you share a bit about that? Essentially, what Arthur Sackler did, which was very clever in a way, if deeply immoral, was Sackler realized that the demand for a drug according to its need is often quite small. What you need to do is to get people buying drug who don't really need it. That's a much bigger patient base. And, and essentially with Valium, he persuaded very large numbers of people in the United States that they needed Valium, when in fact it had, had actually really been approved by the FDA for a, a quite narrow segment of treatment of people who were serve, suffering particular kinds of uh, depression. And that drug became known for a reason as Mother's Little Helper, because he, through marketing mostly, persuaded people that any form of anxiety required Valium. Uh, were you feeling down? Were you feeling uh, like life was a bit of a struggle? Maybe your exams were too hard. You know, time for a pill. And he got Valium. He turned Valium into a massive seller when it, that it was not what it was proved, approved for by the FDA. And you see that lesson learned by Arthur Sackler's brothers, essentially with OxyContin, because the original idea behind OxyContin um, or those very powerful opioids was for end-of-life care, for people dying of cancer, you know, when in enormous pain. And that that's actually how those very high, high-powered drugs have begun, which was in the UK through the hospice system. Um, there was a, a particular nurse. She uh, realized that patients were dying in pain. Her husband had died in pain, actually, from a cancer. And there was really... The, the, the prohibition on using opioids to treat pain, which had come actually out of America's own experience after the Civil War, when large numbers of people ended up addicted uh, to opioids, 
was unreasonable when you were dying. It didn't matter if you became addicted to the drug, you were going to be dead long before it was going to, any addiction was going to kill you. Compassionate care, sure. And it was compassionate end-of-life care. That idea was brought to the United States, but then with OxyContin, Purdue Pharma, the Sacklers, the two Sackler brothers, Arthur's two brothers, they followed his Valium example and said, well, that's a very narrow uh, patient base, just end of life care. And the problem with those patients is they die before, you know, they've taken the drug for very long. We need a much bigger market for this drug. And they started to sell it as a treatment for everyday pain, for chronic pain. And it was marketed as the drug to begin with and to stay with. So not only was it a treatment for chronic pain, it was supposed to be the first line treatment for chronic pain. And so that's that's essentially how you see the continuation, is it begins with Arthur Sackler trying to get uh, as many Americans as possible to take Valium on the grounds that they're feeling a bit twitchy, uh, and his brothers follow through with very high-strength opioid being sold on the grounds that you might be in some form of pain. It didn't really matter what kind. Thank you for tuning in to part one of my compelling discussion with Chris McGreal. Tune in to the next episode of Outside Counsel. In this episode, Chris speaks candidly about what he has learned on the front lines of the opioid epidemic. If you or someone you know is struggling with opioids, please visit www.addictioncenter.com to learn more about the available resources in your community. This podcast is produced by Shannon McDees of Revel and Convey and Larry Shivana. The opinions expressed on outside counsel are neither legal nor medical advice. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers, guests, experts, and or host. They do not expressly nor necessarily reflect the opinion of any institution with which I am or ever have been a member and should never be attributed as such. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Outside Counsel. I'm Jeffrey B. Simon.